This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Thank you, George. It's really, I enjoy being here tonight. Um, I must say, when I was invited to speak about this topic, I thought, I'll take one for the team. <laughs> but uh, tonight, I, I immediately knew the text where I was going to go to, so it's really a privilege for me. If you just give me a second, I'm just going to open my, my notebook here, so I can see what you're seeing. So I have a really beautiful wife, and uh, two beautiful kids, Nathan and Marguerite. My wife is Magritte. Uh, we stay in Durbanville. We've been pastoring the congregation there on the area for 10 years. And it's my baie lekker om vir jou vertel that I really actually like my wife and kids. I was just telling the Rini in front. You, um, you've, <laughs> for those of you, can I just see how many in the house tonight are married? just want to know. So when I say something, you can just say, preach it. You know what you're talking about. Just when we talk about sex and intimacy. Um. But uh, like when I visit, when I visit with friends, and they are, when we leave their home, a married couple, then many times I would look at my wife and I would smile, and then she, she says, said it, and then I say, I'm really glad I'm going home with you tonight, because <laughs> it could have been the other one, and that, you know, my boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. I have a nice wife, I have a good wife. Not everyone has a good wife. I have a good wife. Anyway. So, um, so uh, tonight, just before I start, and I'm not doing this because I have to, I enjoy coming here. In 1997 was the first time that I walked into the church in the Nielsea up there, in the Sunlamsal, in Shofar. Uh, God did a, I don't know why I walked into church, I was backslidden at that time, just felt that I had to go to church tonight, and I met Jesus became, uh, just just commit my life to Jesus and I had a real encounter, a visceral encounter with God that night that I will remember and from that time forward I've been a member of the church and I've really grown and I was in the church for, well that was the end of the year but the next four years I was there while I studied engineering, I had a bursary through the Air Force, I went to the Air Force, I was a, worked in the helicopter section, I really enjoyed it, it was my baie lekker geweest in die lichtmach and um, up there I Sias was such a good mentor to me when we were down here as students. He really was a great influence in my life. Uh, we played squash together, we jogged together. But uh, he really opened up his heart and he really ministered during some difficult times in my family life. He was there as a friend and as a minister, as an older brother. He really is a mentor to me in many ways. And then in Pretoria, um, Sias maintained contact and Pastor Fred maintained contact. And uh, we started praying together, sensing that God... God wants to do something in the city. We recognize there are many churches. We recognize there are good churches. I was in a good church for that year. But I just felt that God said, prompted us to plant a church for the unchurched. There are unchurched people. There are many church people in the city, but unchurched. And we planted a church, and it was really a fun time, a good time. I didn't study theology then yet. And uh, before we prayed, before we preached, we sometimes said, for what we're about to receive, please forgive us. It's a grappe, it's a grappe. <laughs> anyway, but it was amazing, the journey. And, uh, but coming back every now and then to, to join in the service in Stellenbosch is really touching to me. And uh, so I just want to say it's really a good privilege to worship Jesus with you, and especially the students tonight, um, because I was also a student here. And God has really done great things in my life because of my relationship with God in this body. So you can just applaud the leaders that God has appointed over. Let's just honor them. Amen. If you maybe can just jump to the next slide. I, as, a, as a young man, as a, stu- as a student, and even in my teenage years, I grew up in a church that was a... That was a it's a really holiness church um, where I grew up, and that's why I, I really started my relationship with God. But I'll tell you the story later. But I definitely took a took a took a turn for the worse at some point in my life, just during my Air Force years. And I remember thinking always when I thought about 
the Genesis account, when I thought about Adam and Eve, when I thought about the forbidden fruit, but many times I thought, some of you thinking as well, the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve, when they ate the forbidden fruit, it, it just, you know, euphemistically, they had sex. That's what I thought. I thought that the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was sex. So that's just, I don't know how to explain that. It didn't really make sense at all, but that's what I thought for a long time. So I thought like, hmm, that is the original sin. It is the master sin. I mean, going through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you can see that it's a real thing. So I thought that. And a few years ago, if you can just look at the next slide, a few years ago, I discovered that I was not the only one who thought that. In fact, many of the church fathers wrote that. Growing up in very perverse society, a Greco-Roman society, and even after that, many of the church fathers wrote that, for instance, just the next slide, please, that Eve is the unsealer of the forbidden fruit. <laughs> Tortillian used to write that. And Adam and Eve were virgins before the fall. Jerome really thought that Adam and Eve were virgins before the fall, and only he wrote, got married, euphemism for started having sex after the fall. So it is no collecting. And then it says there, Jerome also wrote that he who is too ardent a lover of his own wife is an adulterer. Now, because Afrikaans, but when I read that, it doesn't make any sense. A lover of his own wife is an adulterer. <laughs> what he writes is he says, is he who too frequently enjoys sexual intercourse with his own wife is an adulterer. And you go like, what's that? But the church fathers for a long time taught that sexual intercourse was only meant for procreation. You're not supposed to enjoy it, you know, because sex is the original sin. I tell you the same. <laughs> I tell you the same. It's a crazy thing. Anyone else thinking out loud, you're also welcome to. That's what this is supposed to do. That's what the people thought, and that's what they thought. So anyway, it's so funny. So Justin, 150 after Christ, wrote that Christians marry only to produce children. But you can see that in the first hundred years of the history of the church. That it's a holy calling to abstain from any sexual relationships lifelong. It is a, declared to be a holier call than anything else. But you can see it in the, in the makeup and the history of the church, the convents and stuff like that. People really believe that which produces in us the idea that God is a God who hates sex. That God is a God who is disgusted with the idea of sex. Uh, maybe you can just show the next slide. It's amazing. So Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the great monks, he, um, <laughs> he, every time he had a sexual temptation or you would do something drastic. Like, for instance, you, the picture of him diving into that icy pond. Joke. But he, he once looked at the face of a woman and he thought she was really beautiful. And before he could think anything else, he jumped through the ice into an icy pond <laughs> just to get the, the equivalent of a cold shower that many of us sometimes need to take. And there's a St. Benedict of Nursia he was famed. This has not just happened once. This happened repeatedly. Every time he was tempted with a sexual thought, he would jump into a thorn bush and roll around in it until his mind really disassociated from anything sexual. <laughs> Francis of Assisi, he would uh, every time... I mean, he used to be a troubadour. He used to be a, someone who seduced women, Francis of Assisi, by his beautiful voice and his singing. Grew up as a wealthy man in Italian village, but then he met Jesus, and he had a very powerful encounter with the living Jesus, renounced all his wealth, renounced all his status, renounced everything that he had, and he lived, you know, Francis of Assisi, he lived a life as a man who lived for others, never had a home after that again. He really wanted to emulate Jesus, just living in the world his whole life, and just preaching about and demonstrating the love of Christ. But every time he had backflashes of his previous life, or had a sexual temptation, what he would do is just disrobe himself and roll around in the ice and the snow until the thought goes away. If that did not work once or twice in his life, he followed the example of Benedict of Nursia, would just dive into the closest thorn bush 
and the pain just did its work and he, and he removed himself. So the early church's relationship or idea of sexuality wasn't healthy in many ways. Many of us aren't still the same. The medieval fornication calendar, just the previous slide again, up there in your right-hand side in the corner, it's just an image. But it's amazing, the early church would have, a, this is just for background entertainment, I'm sure you're enjoying this as well, but had the calendar, the church published the calendar every year that allowed you to have intimacy with your own wife that you were allowed to have, that except during Lent, except during the season of Easter, of Christmas, and about 20 other feasts. So at the end of the year, you had 44 days in which you were allowed to be intimate with your wife. If you had any other days intimate with your wife, then you would be guilty of the sin of fornication, and the church had punishment for you. <laughs> Crazy. Some of you are thinking, <laughs> We do not publish that calendar. One of two of the older people might say, where can I get a copy of that calendar? <laughs> I need to tell my wife, I need to tell my husband, we need to pick it Anyway, but thinking, <laughs> thinking about sexuality and spirituality, so now that we're laughing and it's like a, thinking about sexuality and spirituality, I think for many of us in the room today, and I want to say regardless of your age and regardless of your marital status, I think for many of us, the idea of sexuality and spirituality, of God being the God of our spiritual worship and God being the God of our sexual life, desires, passion, it's difficult to bring those two together. I would guess that for many of us, it's, it's a difficult thing to, how do I balance this? I mean, just going about from week to week and uh, thinking about your relationships or dating, for those of you still dreaming about honeymoon, for those of you remembering your honeymoon, it, it's sometimes a bit difficult to bring those two ideas together. How, how, how does it sit in your head? How, how do you think, how do you relate to God as the God of sex as we relate to Him as the God who received our worship and receives our daily lives? How, how do you relate to that? And I think for many of us, it's a bit difficult. We, we live in an age that is extremely sexual. We don't live in the first age that is extremely sexual. I mean, just paging through the pages of the New Testament makes you realize that we are not the first people grappling with this. How do I live a holy life in such a perverse world? And a holy life is not defined as thinking sex is sin. How do I sit comfortably with my sexual desires? How do I sit comfortably just with my gender, my sexuality? How do I live comfortably in this body that God made? <laughs> God made this body. God made the sexual drive. It's not the devil. He gave me this, this body. But to sit comfortably with, this is the body that I have. God is the God. I know there are a few children here tonight, so I'm going to... God is the God of the climax. It's a beautiful euphemism right there. God is the one who designed that for our pleasure. So you're thinking like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so to think, of, to think of our sexuality and our spirituality and to not make the ancient mistake of Gnosticism, thinking that the flesh is bad, and the angels and the spirit is beautiful. Do not make that stupid mistake, but to sit comfortably with the idea that God is the God of sex. As we worship him today, he's the same God that receives glory in the proper use of our bodies. God, God really is glorified in all things. Mark Driscoll wrote so beautifully, and I want to just open the floor here to say that we come into this auditorium tonight with 30 minutes left. We come into this auditorium tonight with a big suitcase full of ideas when it comes to sex. This is not the first time that you hear the word or have ideas or images. And I'm really comfortable with that tonight. You know, 
in our society, Driscoll says that many people relate to sex as God. I live for sex. I live, I think about sex is what takes up my imagination, my time, my free time. Whenever I have a free moment, I would like to devote my attention to the ideas of sex, whether it's on my phone, in my head, whether it's with someone. But I live for that. I plan my life to to, 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 to enjoy, to think about, to contemplate that sex is my God, that in many ways it, it is the most prominent aspect and the most delightful aspect of my life, my God. Sex is what I live for. Then there are those in the room tonight that you think about sex and it's gross, it's off, it's slag. Because of real reasons, because of where you come from because of what happened to you long ago or what you were exposed to or maybe just because of your temperament. You grew up with the idea, like all the saints we just mentioned, that sex is bad, sex is evil, sex is wrong, sex is gross. Shouldn't mention about it, shouldn't talk about it, don't open up. And the moment you get married, your mother says, enjoy it with your husband. You're going like, where does that come from? <laughs> it's like... You know, and we grow up with that. And we see people that go through marriage preparation and then you have to make that transition between, oh, tot, enjoy it. And you go like, how do you do that? How do you just go, and your brain is now right. Sex as gross. But biblically speaking, God designed sex to be a gift. It is a gift to be enjoyed just like everything else we have. God says, here is it. I made it for you. I made it for you. Have it. Enjoy it. This is great. This is good. I mean, the whole book, Song of Solomon, it's all about sexual intercourse, sexual preparation, sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. God is not even really mentioned in that book. For years and years, for centuries, it has been used as sexual education for Jewish boys and girls before they get married because someone had to have that talk with them. <laughs> So it's easy. Let's just give them Solomon's Song of Solomon. Read it. It's like when we were young, we had these books. And it said, Fertiners. Um, I can't remember, but it's really funny. Yeah, it's a sexualität for science. And your mom would give it to you from Kumbux, and she'd go like, read it. <laughs> I'm not going to have that conversation with you. <laughs> it's like, do something with it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you'd go like, Mom, it's three years too late. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> anyway. So, I'd like us to read a text, and it's going to be a longer text. I just want to say it's going to be a longer text. It will be the only text that we read today. It is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I could have used Colossians. I could have used Thessalonians. Because Paul had to write to every one of the churches in the Greco-Roman world, now that Jesus is Lord, we'll have to do a realignment of your desires and your affections, your attitudes towards sexuality. Because once you lived in the world, but, but now you don't live in the world anymore. Once you had the standards of the world as your guideline, your passions, your drives as your guideline, your ideologies. But now, now Jesus is Lord. And he's also the Lord of your sexuality. He's the Lord of this whole beautiful meat package. He's all of this. Your body, soul, and spirit belongs to him. And he had to write to them. Corinth, I think the reason why we choose this one is because it was a city much like, Gordon Fee writes, it's a city like New York, plus Las Vegas, <laughs> plus Los Angeles. To give you a good idea, it's like a city that is perverse in every aspect. It's a harbor, it's a port city. Historians write, when Paul wrote this letter and when Paul visited and planted this church in 50 to 52 AD, he spent 18 months there. When Paul planted this congregation there, he spent a long time there. And I would think it's good that he spent a long time there. Because he had to model and teach what godliness looks like. So he spent those 18 months there. And... Um, because historians write that 10 to 15% of the population of that city was involved in the sex trade, notably as temple prostitutes. It was normative. 
it was right to pay your rights to the gods by hiring the male and female prostitutes. So now it gives you a bit of idea why he had to write that much about sexuality. So let's look at chapter 6. He just wrote about what do we do with court cases. And then he says, you say, he's responding to one of their letters. And you'll say it, he's responding twice. He's saying, you say, you have a saying in your city that food is for the stomach and stomach is for, the f- f- um, for food. And God will destroy both of them. So what he's in say, implying, he says, listen, guys, we've got appetites. I desire coffee, I'm going to have a coffee. I desire a sticky steak, I'm going to have a sticky steak. I desire a girl, I'm going to have a girl. He's saying, you say, you live, that your body has urges and that you're supposed to satisfy your urges. That's the saying in Corinth. By the way, in the Greco-Roman world of the day, they had a, they had a, an, a verb, to behave like a Corinthian. It means you're behaving like a sexual animal. <laughs> That's what they're saying. And he's saying this is where this comes from. The body, however, he said, is not meant for sexual, sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He says, you're saved now. This body belongs to God, to Jesus. And by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he say, he will raise you also, that body. In chapter 15, he says, God is just going to put immortality on that body. You're thinking doesn't matter what I do with this body. He says, if that body matters, it's going to last very, very long in eternity. The Lord's going to raise up that body of yours. Check what you do with it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and, very graphic here, unite it to a prostitute? Never. He says, never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with this prostitute is one with her in body? And then he quotes Genesis 4. He said that the two shall become one flesh, a picture of sexual intimacy. And he says, but however, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you see that progression? Paul is so good. One in body with the prostitute, one in flesh, speaks about intimacy, affection, soul. He says, but you are one in spirit with the Lord. And he says, This whole body of yours hosts the Lord. And that's where he goes to the next chapter. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't you just want to touch the person next to you and say, flee from sexual immorality? I didn't mean you had to do that one. That's cute. Very, very good. Remember always, remember always young men and young women. When I was younger, when I was a student, I always thought that it's only men who have sexual temptation. I was dumb, okay, being a pastor and a husband for many years, it's not just men. Anyway, so Solomon, the wisest of all the men in the world, fell for sexual temptation. David, the most godly man in the Old Testament, fell for sexual temptation. Samson, the strongest of all the men, fell for sexual temptation. It's only Joseph who ran away. And that's why Paul is saying, (laughs) flee sexual immorality. He writes to Timothy the same thing. And he says, all other sins a person commits is outside of his body. You do it with your body, but the sins are there. He says, but sexual immorality is different. You sin against your own body. I want you to to get that. You sin against your own body. You you do damage to this body of yours and the one involved. but, But sin causes damage here, not just out there. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? And for us, it's a bit difficult. I think tonight we can sense the presence of God, but we don't have, we don't have first century approaches to the temples that Paul was referring to in Corinth as you walk from the harbor to the city center with all the, the temples that adorned, that housed the presence of their God, that showed the nature of their God in saying, hey, you house the presence of God and you show the nature of God. And saying, you're a temple. You're a temple. Don't you just want to say, I'm sorry, but don't you just want to say to the person next to you that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Amen. It's good to know that not only I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, but all your brothers and sisters in church here next to you are as well. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, he says, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. 
Now, so that's the first one. Now he takes another quote and he says, Now, for the other matter that you wrote to me about, you wrote that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He says, but because of your vulnerability to sexual immorality, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. (laughs) He's saying that, Corinthians, you became completely crazy. Because of the sin in the city, you're saying all sex is sinful, therefore we will be holy now. I'm a temple of God and therefore I must be holy to God. He's saying, he's saying, I, Nia, Nia, have sex with your wife. Have sex with your husband. Do you see he clarifies with your own, with your own, with your own? Okay. Thank you. This is very important. Because of your vulnerability, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. That was self-control. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but he yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and fasting is the implication there. Then come together again so that that Satan will not tempt you. He's saying that your body needs sexual intimacy. We are designed that way. We need sexual intimacy. And he's saying, for that reason, I command you, you must have sex with your own wife, with your own husband. It's beautiful. Paul doesn't say he shouldn't. He doesn't say he said, have sex. Thank you. Then come together again. And I say this as a concession, he says, not as a command. So he's saying, let me explain to you. I wish that all of you were like I am, which means leave your wife, leave your life separately, not your wife, leave your idea of being... He's saying to, to leave the gift of marriage and decide that I will serve Jesus all my days and travel the whole world without any worry for anyone else so I can serve him. To leave a life devoted to Christ. He says, I wish all of you were like me, but each of us have our own gift. He says, I have the gift of celibacy, but you don't have it. Not everyone has it. Everyone is created uniquely with your desires, and your desires are a gift of God. And he says, live according to the gift that you have. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry. And this is it. They should marry. It says, marry in the house tonight. They should marry. <laughs> Let me just see. Marry, I just made your evening. We will get married right after this. And then he says... For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. That's a very good line, huh? Youngsters, it's better to marry than to burn with passions. Really good. So, I'd like us to look at the just three areas in this text. I feel it was a long text, but it's good. Let's just look at three areas. The first one is, we are not animals. That's what Paul is saying. He says, we're not animals that are driven by our appetites. We're not animals. You say that... The, the, the literal Old Testament, the literal Greek says meat is for the belly and belly is for the meat. He says, no, no, we're not like that. We're not people who just live according to our urges. We don't just give ourselves over to urges like wild animals. He says, no, you're not animals. We are absolutely not animals. He says, and his reason is because I wasn't made to satisfy myself and to please myself, but I was made to please the Lord. And then he says, I was bought with a price to please the Lord and that my body is still going to last a long time in eternity. I've got to watch what I do with this body. I'm not an animal. I don't live in, in young people and older people. I just want to say that sometimes, I mean, I thought that, I thought that when I was younger, I thought that when I'm 40, you know, I'm going to be calmer in every aspect of my life, also my sexuality. But I want to say I'm alive and well, you know. <laughs> I don't want to mean that ugly or bad. I just want to say that we think that, we think that, you know, but I want to say we're healthy. We, we're, going, we're going on. We, we're having a great life, me and my wife, in many ways. I, I don't mean that funny or ugly or any way. I just want to say that regardless of your age, regardless of your age, 
we should learn the secret of self-control. And that's what Paul says to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians. He says, therefore, learn to control your own body. We don't just give ourselves over to, as animals to our appetites. When I have the urge, I'm not just going to give myself over to it. In his motives, like we see, he says, this body belongs to the Lord. He bought it. And the Lord cares about what I do with my body, and I should care what I do about my body. The first one, we're not animals. And the second one, he says, and I like this one, he says that we are not angels either. In chapter 7, he says, because some people think that sex is evil and sex is dirty, and therefore I resign to give myself over to never ever have sex again. And he's saying some married people are doing that. Because of the sin in the city, because of the sex in the city, we're thinking... Oh, that's evil, and I don't want to associate with that. And he's saying, no, no, no. Sexuality and your desire for sexuality, your passion is not evil. It's not ungodly to do that. He says, we're not angels. We have bodies, and the bodies are a gift to God, are from God. And what I do with my body doesn't matter. But he's saying, I have to steward this body. And my sexuality is a gift from God, and I steward it. We are not angels. He's saying, is it good for you to abstain? He says, no, if you're married, don't abstain. He says, also, if you burn with passion, please get married. I just want to say that I want to emphasize that for a while. We're seeing that good, beautiful, bright people marry later and later and later and later. And then as pastors, we pray for them because... They married when they were 38, 34, 39, decided to wait five years before they started having kids. She's 42 now, and she's thinking, it's a good time to have kids. And then the soundtrack water, that body has had a few spins around the sun, and fertility is not as high as it used to be. Because, sorry, and they're doing that, and it's just, and the reason is this, because I look for the perfect one, and I must still finish this in my life, and that in my life, and that in my life, and eventually, I want to say th- that you missed it. You missed very good times with the wife of your youth. So it's fine if you're still a man, and you interpret that, and you're 14, you marry a 20-year-old, you know. Then you still have a wife of youth. But it's not the Bible says. Bad grap, bad grap. Okay. What I'm saying is that your physical desire is sometimes also a prompting that I have a desire for companionship. It's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. Sometimes we really desire to be married and it doesn't happen for very many reasons. I'm just saying... In your head, don't think I will marry when I'm 32. Just, just, just don't do that dumb things in your head. Just think that God has given me this body. God has given me this life. I want to share it with someone. I want to share it with someone so that I may not fall into temptation. I want to say that many times people marry older and older as well because of sexual sin. So I get everything I want. Why should I make a commitment? Ladies, gentlemen, if you are tempted in a relationship like that, step away from the vehicle. Step away from the vehicle. Step aside and saying, if you want it, put a ring on it. Eh? And then you sing that song. Okay. okay. Enjoy your own spouse. The third thing we read in the text, and this is the last thing I want to show from the text. Very simple. We could do so much more from the text. But the third thing. So, we're not animals. Amen. I'm not just going to give myself my desires, my passion. I'm just going to do that. Secondly, we're not angels either. Sex is good. Sex is a gift from God. Please, within marriage, do it. If you burn, then marry. It's a gift from God. It's not evil. It's not bad. God is the God who gave it to me. Find a proper place for that. Thirdly, and this is biblical sex, it was meant for bonding, for a life of bonding. The two shall become one flesh. This is God's design for marriage from the very beginning, for sexuality. To f- be a means of bonding, but also also the place of bonding. To enjoy intimacy. 
It is all about intimacy. And this is what he says. Sex really bonds people together. Sexual sin is against this body. And because God bought this body, I should treat it holy. But God has a special place. Sexuality is the means of bonding and intimacy. And it's also the enjoyment of the intimacy in that. We're meant to be. And I want to say, maybe, I don't assume that you grew up with a, a biblical background, with a theological background. And it might really seem strange to you today that for the first time ever you hear that, you know, God really wants you to enjoy one person all your life. But that's why the church through the ages and the scriptures through the ages always speak about sexuality as something sacred to be shared with one person. Sexuality is something spiritual as well. It is something really spiritual. If you think about it, you don't have to be too deep, but just a little bit of philosophy. It tells us, Malachi says, do be faithful to the wife of your youth. And then he says, why? Because God wants godly offspring. And he says, therefore, don't do violence to your tech, to your, so don't do violence to your own spirit, but be faithful to your wife. If you think about it, in sexual intimacy, man and woman come together and there's something spiritual because a spirit is born into the world because of that. Don't really know how it happens, something mystical, but a baby that will live forever <laughs> is born from this thing. It's really amazing. It's something spiritual. I want to show how in a very practical way, we know that it's really spiritual. Spiritual touching on our identity. For those of us who experience pain in sexuality ever before, it's the easiest for us to get it. It's the easiest for us. Don't want to open too many wounds here. But for those of us who experience sexual violence in some form in our life somewhere, to some degree, know that sex is more than just biological is more than physical because of what he does to me. <laughs> because someone touches my hand, it doesn't do that to me. <laughs> someone who slaps me on my, on my back, it doesn't do that to me. Someone who punches me in the face doesn't do that to me. But if you do that to me, it changes me forever. It brings a shame and a fear and a timidity and an anger in which is something different. It's because it's spiritual. Sex is spiritual. That's why the Bible says proper place for it to be a blessing was within the covenant of marriage where there is a security for I'm here for you regardless of where this is going to and you are here for me so therefore I have the freedom increasingly I also want to say for those of you who've had the unfortunate experience of enjoying sex before marriage I want to say it's really good in marriage and it gets better because of increased intimacy and trust Someone is calling a friend, really needs help right now. So I want to show, want to show you this. So there's a scripture that says, my time is nearly up. Proverbs chapter 15. It says, drink water from your own cistern. The Proverbs write a lot about sexuality. Drink water from your own cistern. For those of you who are new to scripture, this is a metaphor for sexuality. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? No. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Let you be intoxicated with her love all of your days. It's a gift. Sex is a gift. A place of bonding, a place of refreshing in marriage. I want to tell you my story so that some of you can relate. You can put the John 8 scripture up there. I was a student here. Before I was a student here, lived in the, grew up in the East Rand, good Christian home, really great parents, really great community. And like I said, it was a bit of a holiness church, which I'm so glad about. I ken nog so baie skrifte in Afrikaans, is crazy. Maar, so, when I was, when I was in grade 11, I was a slow starter. When I was in grade 11, I went ice skating um, in the East Rand in Boxburg. No, I did not have a mullet at that time. No. <laughs> I, didn't, 
Didn't have a free flow exhaust. I was in grade 11. You heard that? Anyway, so I went ice skating, and I was cool because we went as a group, and there was this girl, and Erica is really pretty, and I was, I was cool. So I went ice skating, and I showed her how cool I can be until one of the guys who really could ice skate just got annoyed with me and just tapped my ankle. And uh, I woke up with a light in my face in the office on a stretcher with a neck. So I, I came down really hard, a bit of concussion. And then, then something really bad happened. Erika took advantage of me in that moment. Standing outside, this, look at my smile. This, anyway, standing outside in the light drizzle of the rain, I was a bit in my car still. And then she looked at me in my eyes and she stood on her toes. And then, then I kissed the girl and I liked it. I really, really liked it. And I thought, this is good. This is good. And then one kiss, you know, not with her. She was in a different school, so I didn't really see her that much. She just took advantage of me that one night. And then, but then I, I tasted a kiss and I thought, I can do this. So kissing, more kissing, more kissing. So my, my last year at school was a, was a good kissing and then naughtier and naughtier. You know, I want to explore more. There must be something more, better than this. Then I went to the Air Force. So the first few months was just men, sweat, parade grounds, guns, sweat, tough, no sleep was bad. And then we were let out of the camps and we allowed to go into the public again. And then we bulked up a bit. And we had uniform in Pretoria, and chicks dig uniform. And then, <laughs> then I went into just more experimenting of immoral lifestyle. But, I, but I, because I was a Christian in my head, there was a line. It's like that meatloaf song, I will do anything for love, but not that. So I was always on this side of the line. <laughs> I was always on this side. And, I, and that went into my varsity days. And like I said, in my first year... It was a bit wild. I nearly got Spader of the Year re- award in Elswerte. I, I nearly got it. So I was, I was really good with the girls, in my eyes anyway. It was really bad. These girls looking angry at me right here. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have Grace somewhere? Grace, anyway. Anyway. Elswerte owns the after. Anyway. So then, then, at the end of my first year, I had a meeting with Jesus. And God really touched me. God deeply touched me. And um, had a real relationship. I grew in the church, but I was always still, you know, I wasn't that, but, it, you know, when I, when, when I was spending time with a girl, it would always go physical. It would always go physical. You know, but always the sign of the, the, the line, although in my head, if someone would do that to my daughter, I would kill him. I would really kill him because it's way on the other side of the real line. But in my head, I was like, was it dummy sex hard? Everything, you know, everything else. And then I remember in my third year, by that time I was a, a leader in church. I was a real disciple. I was passionate. Everyone in my res knew about Jesus because we preached him loudly and clearly. And I had a good reputation, good character. That issue with the line was still there. Went up to Pretoria for holiday work in the Air Force. And the last evening there, we just cared at some student hostel with some, some friends. There was a girl there, caught my eye. And I can't really say what happened that night. I didn't really drink much. But that night, I think it felt to me, don't theologize this, this is just me speaking, it felt to me as that God was just letting go of the reins for that evening and say, have what you want. Have what you want. See now. Just do, do, do what you want. Yes, and that evening, so it went all the way for the first time in my life. And... Um, it was just like I was an animal that night, in a sense, you know. And um, left the following morning, left the res there the following morning. Later, got into a car with two friends who thought I was the man because they had to pick me at a girl's rest. Like, wow, how cool was that now? And I just didn't talk to them. I was just lying in the back of that old, old cadet, Opal cadet, drove all the way to Cape Town to Stellenbosch back. I just felt so bad. They tried to talk to me. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want anything. I was so feeling so dirty, so guilty, so like mm, disappointed with myself. Really, really disappointed with myself. Like, how could I do that? And yes, and it's not as though it's a secret because these two guys on my floor know about it now. So there's like the whole reputation of the church and of Jesus and say, Cast now, you know, this great Christian leader 
I know what you did last summer. It was in the middle of the winter, but you know, everyone knows what I mean. And I remember we were driving between Kulsberg and Leinsberg on that long open road in the middle of the winter, in the evening, and the car died. Just electronics, just opal, it happens with those, those days. No, that specific car had happened. Anyway, car died. I was at the back and I go like, ah, need that talk to to the back of the car, lying down, and they, typical Owens, going to car fix in the middle of the park. Open the bonnet, and they like, yeah, try here. What do you do? I mean, God is <laughs> So they drive for half an hour. Trucks would drive past. No one would stop. Who stops for crazy people in the middle of the right? You know. So they just drive by, and I go like. Ugh. And the next moment, I'm still wallowing in my self-pity and my shame and my guilt. And it's like, it really felt like, ugh, God is so far away. And the next moment, I hear Jesus saying to me, Ross, get up, put your hand on the engine, say to it to start. And I go like, surprised at the voice of Jesus speaking to me in the middle of the Karoo, after I sinned. And I ignored it and I heard the Lord second time. So I walked out and I go like, this is going to be uncomfortable. These guys picked me up at the hostel, and I'm going to, you know, do a Jesus name thing here in the car. So I waited technically until the two of them, one was smoking behind the car, and the other one was in the car. And I say, I'm not, not going to mention the guy's name, but I just said to him, and I just looked at the engine, and I say, in the name of Jesus, start. And the engine started, and then I felt like a verum. <laughs> it's like... Because clearly Jesus was not far away from me. It was better that he's far away, but now he wasn't far away from me in my sin and my self-pity. So then I went, climbed back in the car, and they goes like, what happened? And I'm like, ik weet like leve plat. All the way, got back to the hostel in Stellenbosch, and Elswichter closed the door for the next day. I just spent time in my room just praying and praying. And it's just like, sorry, God, I really, I don't know how I did that. And then I just, the honest prayer is like, God, I was always like this. It's not as though this was a mistake. I was always like this. You know, I'm a perverse person. I'm a perverse person. I'm a, I'm a sexual sinner. I'm like, that's what I am. I really prayed like that for a long time. And then the Lord just said to me clearly, 1 John 1, 8. It says, Ross, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And I was still trying. And the Lord just said, faithful and just. And I go like, I get that Jesus is a faithful forgiver because through the scriptures he always forgives. But why is he a just? Why is he just to forgive me? I mean, why is he only fair to forgive me my sins? How is it that, that I get the faithfulness, he's a faith, his character is that of forgiveness, but how is he just? And the gospel just came back to me. If indeed Christ Jesus became sin for me on the cross. If indeed, if it is true that God really, Christ took my sin upon himself, my sexual immorality upon himself on the cross and carried the punishment for my shame, for my sin on the cross. If it is true that he carried my shame because of my sexual immorality on the cross then God is fair to forgive me. Because a righteous God cannot punish two people for the same sin. A righteous judge cannot punish two people for the same sin. Christ became sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is what we see over and over in the text, whether it's the prostitute, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. God is faithful and just to declare her innocent of all transgressions and saying, come, whoever comes to me, whoever approaches me, come, let's reason together, the Lord says. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Psalm 103. I'll remove it as far as the east is from the west, your sins from you. He is a God that is a merciful saver and not just, and this is what the Lord said to me in my room, it's not just that I forgive you, but I also cleanse you. I cleanse you. Your sin doesn't stick to you like leprosy anymore. I am a God who gladly forgives you all your sins. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you're like, 
can identify with my story of someone who really wants to serve God, but there's this sexual drive in you that you just don't have handles on or control over. And actually, to be honest, you just enjoy it so much that you don't think or you think it's a problem. But you carry the same guilt as I did. You carry the same shame as I did. You, you, you really feel bad about yourself. Maybe there are pictures that you just can't get rid of and you just feel like, a, you know, you worship God, but it's always there. It's always there. The, the, the shame is always there. The guilt is always there. And you try to worship it in your head. Our God is a gracious God. If you confess your sins to him and recognize that Jesus really became sin for you and you confess your sins to him, God's response will always be the same. Go, I don't condemn you. Sin no more. Always, always. A God is a faithful, gracious, merciful God. Your father is a the prodigal son, comes home, stinking of the pigs, living a life with the whores. And the father says, come on, man, I've been waiting for you. Let's, let's take a bath. Let's bath you. Let's wash away your sins. Let me reclothe you. Let's continue with the relationship. His heart is always open towards you. There's no reason to live with shame before God. But he's not just a God that forgives, but he also heals and restores. If you're in a relationship tonight that is that you constantly sin in sexually, I'm not going to give you advice tonight. I'm not going to tell you how to fix that. All I'm going to say to you is that there's a Father who loves you. There's a Lord who's powerful and gracious to forgive you. And his first invitation is always the same. Come. If your burden is heavy, come to me. Come to me. And we're going to have a time of response later this evening. We're going to have a response saying that if you're a Christian and you really struggle with guilt and shame, then he's here to forgive you. If you're someone and you're really hurt because of something which happened, if you're one of those people that feel that sin is not necessarily your God but gross to you, then I also want to invite you to come and respond, to say, God, will you come and heal my image? God, there was real stuff that happened. It's not fake stuff. It's real stuff. It's really hurting and I'm angry. Just to be real to God tonight and say, God, will you come and restore this image? Because I don't see it as a gift. And I always live in response. I'm always a slave to what happened to me in my past. And the Lord wants to heal and wants to restore you. He's a God that does that. He's going to take away the pain. He's going to take it away slowly. I'm not going to pr- promise you a bullet, to go, a silver bullet thing one evening. It's all gone. If it happens, glory to God. But he's a God that in relationship, he really makes all things. That's the word that I had tonight. See, says the Lord, I make all things new. I make all things new. Don't you want to stand where you are tonight, please? Don't you want to stand where you are tonight? Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.